Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Lisa Pressman, and today we're having such a cool conversation with lawyer, author, activist, Eve Rodsky. She wrote a book called Fair Play to find a way for women to have more time and space to reclaim, discover, and nurture the natural gifts and interests that make us uniquely us. And it's so cool. I really so appreciated this episode and talking to Eve. She makes it so practical and she has a whole game, like a way of doing this so that you can have a more balanced, easier time in your relationship, in your parenting, in your experience as a mom. This conversation is about getting started thinking about time and anxiety saving system that offers couples a completely new way to divvy up their domestic responsibilities without removing those parts of you that make you as a parent and while increasing the connection with your partner and with your children. It's so cool. And I really love the way that she shares this system. And it actually even has cards, like a a whole card system to make it so actionable, which of course is my favorite thing, making research into action, having toolkits and really thinking about ourselves as mothers and our role as women. And so absolutely, I hope men are listening. This definitely centers more around women, but the whole point is that ideally this is centering more fair play. So I hope everyone's listening, but take the time for yourself. You will come away with tools and a really cool conversation. If you enjoy this episode, please don't hesitate to follow, rate, and write a little review. And of course, keep DMing me on my Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast for more tips and Q&A. For me, you know, this topic is not something, Aliza, that I wanted to be when I grow up, right? I did not start out being a gendered division of labor specialist. It wasn't on my third grade what do you want to be when you grow up? Hopes and dreams. Uh, hopes and dreams. I think it was like astronaut and like veterinarian or something. I don't know, but it definitely wasn't gender division of labor specialists, but they, you know, I mean, as you know, because you're a psychologist, right? They say research is often research. Research. Research, yeah. right? And so getting into this topic of balance, work-life integration, women's unpaid labor, uh, the second shift, invisible work, the mental load, however you've heard that term before, started with in 2011. And, and I think starting where I started with this work is important because it can take you to us to now and how it's changed since the pandemic. But I literally started because my husband, Seth, sent me a text that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries started this lifelong journey. And and I don't unpack it as much in the book, but I can unpack it with you because it was after my second son, Ben was born. He was born in 2011 in the summer. This was in the fall. When I'm getting that text, I'm also texting and driving, of course, because that's Mm -hmm. what we do in LA. I have a breast pump and a diaper bag on the passenger seat of my car. I have gifts for a newborn baby to return in the backseat of my car. I have a client contract in my lap because I had left I had opted out of the traditional workforce and um, started my own law firm 
And now I never, I put opted out in quotes. I never use the word opted out. If there's a woman out there, if you're a listener and you are not in the traditional workforce and you started there, it was because you were forced out for some reason, not because it was a decision that we make. And so I had this client contract in my lap. I had a pen in between my legs because I still mark things up analog. And as I'm receiving this text and I'm, I have the press bump, the diaper bag and the gifts, I am also racing to get my older son, Zach, who was three at the time at his toddler transition program, which in America, right, they cost your entire salary and they last about seven minutes. <laughs> so as I was racing to get him, the pen was literally stabbing me in the vagina every time I hit a stop sign. <laughs> and that is the metaphor that I remember of that day, just being literally stabbed in the vagina by a pen. And then the text was just obviously the straw that broke the camel's back. But Aliza, you and I live in LA now, even though we're fundamentally tied to New York City and the East Coast, but we don't take traffic lightly here, at least and not before the pandemic. And so for me to pull over and start to cry, sob oh. over this text, something obviously was extremely wrong. And I'll just tell you what I was thinking when I was sitting there with the pen between my legs and the contract and the crying, I was thinking to myself, well, I guess the first thing I was thinking was like, it's so cliche that my marriage is ending over being, you know, the fulfiller of my husband's smoothie needs. Like my marriage should be ending over an affair with an NFL player for sure. It was so cliche, but really what I was thinking, I think was that how had this happened to me? I did not have the career marriage combo. I thought I was going to have not even close. And on top of it, I had become the default I call in fair play the she fault, even though it happens to other family structures that are not just hetero cisgender, but the she fault for literally every single household and domestic task for my family. And that was the statistic of women doing two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family. And that was pre-pandemic before it, it increased 153%. Mm. Um, that statistic was something I was undeniably living at the time, but I had never, even as a woke feminist or whatever I want to call myself, you know, educated, uh, working woman who had been told she can have it all, she could do it all. I had never even heard, heard of the term mental load, second shift. I had no idea that women held two thirds or more of what it took to run a home and family. This all came as a complete shock to me. And so what I like to say now is I'm the ghost of Christmas future. The reason why I entered this subject area and have become a gender division of labor researcher, author, attorney, and activist is because I never want this to happen to anyone ever again. So this brings up so many questions and feelings, and I'm sure anybody, any of us who are raising children are really not finding the answers, but holding the hope that there will be some. And you have some. So I wonder three things, and I don't mean to diminish the emotional experience that you had by no, diving no, right into it. not at all, not at all. You've taken that experience and turned it into this whole world of supporting other women. So I'm, I think a thank you is definitely necessary. And also, if you're talking to people who are about to have babies, who are trying to get their head wrapped around how to be prepared because you said something that just kind of reminded me, you don't hear about these things or think about these things before necessarily, or if you do, it is just so hard to grasp why blueberries, right. remembering the blueberries could be such a big deal. Like, and I don't want to diminish the experience of somebody who doesn't have kids, but the every single minute that you can get back is so valuable in a way that you cannot comprehend before. So I- Absolutely. A man in White Plains, New York told me he was divorcing over a glue stick. Wow. And we could impact that on a different podcast, but exactly. I think it's, it is a time in your life, again, back to being the ghost of Christmas future. I mean, I really spend a lot of time with women who are in high school and in college, Aliza, because, uh, and of course, the book is written for people who have kids too, but I just remember, and then we'll get, of course, into the solutions. I think what's so beautiful about your podcast is that uh, it's so practical. So we will definitely get there. But I do want to remember and to honor 
the eve that was 21 when I remember like I was definitely going to be president and senator because like, of course you can do both. No one's done it before, but I could do both because you can, you know, legislate during the day and then, you know, Congress, you know, Senate, you know, recesses around three or four, and then you can do your executive orders at night. But I was never going to give up being a Nick City dancer because <laughs> dance is my passion. But I found out, you know, there's 1230 games. You could take Air Force One into New York and then you can dance in the Saturday games, see your family and then fly back to D.C. and just start all over again. Right. So there was I just remember that 21 year old version of myself. And then recently I gave a commencement speech to women with that amount of fire. And it was called, you only have 10 years left to live. And it actually sounds really dark, (laughs) but I actually think what it is, is it shows how important it is for us to support each other, to have podcasts like this, to have experiences like this, to share the realities of what happens to us once we get wrapped up in society's definition of what success looks like for women, which is ultimately our milestones of marriage, kids, money, being a partner, a parent, and a professional. And so the idea that I had to literally die a death to be in rebirth means that this work is not just practical, because I think people need to take agency in their own lives, not to only have 10 years left to live, but that they can keep that fire, that that fire is what makes you and special. And I don't want it to go out for women. So having that fire and being able to motivate and also there is resilience in having realistic appraisals of things. And so I think that's what you're talking about is you can keep the fire and the passion and you want to aim for the moon on the one hand and you want to, but it's the same thing. You wouldn't want to say to your kids, that was a mistake that we've made for decades. Like you be anything, do anything, have everything. It feels horrible when you grow up and find out that was a lie or if it wasn't that you're the loser, like you're the failure. And so one of the the most important components of resilience in humans, and we know this from so much research, is being able to have a realistic appraisal. And so if you can set that up, you know, it's still realistic to have high hopes and dreams, but just maybe you can shift them and adjust them a little bit. and, And so before you go into this journey of parenthood, can you reframe what is happening so that, yeah, you're not done in 10 years. hundred percent. And I think part of being realistic and keeping on those hopes and dreams, which is a both and it's not an either, or, as you said, mm-hmm. is recognizing that for women to step into their full power in the world, we have to invite men to step into their full power in the home and fair play did become a love letter to men. And again, I'm talking to all family structures here, but the reason why I'm centering the hetero cisgender partnership is because that's where a lot of our assumptions, uh, our cultural assumptions come from. And so we can talk about how this affects LGBTQIA couples, single parents, but I'm centering the dynamic between women and men because we, we have to unravel some things. One of the most common annotations, Eliza, I did when I interviewed for Fair Play, and this is now 10 years of research We have over 17,000 people in our CRM database that we use for research. I mean, I probably have the the largest longitudinal study on unpaid labor in the world is that you recognize that you can absolutely take agency in your own life, which is what we're going to talk about now, while recognizing that the systems that we have been put in, like I said, one of the most Uh, popular annotations in that research was C-I-Y-O-O, and that is complicit in your own oppression. And it's why I chose to write to women, particularly because we have been taught in many different ways, and this will be triggering. Some of this is, I will say, this took me 10 years to learn, and we're unpacking this in like 45 minutes. So thank (laughs) you for staying with us. This is a 101. But I think when we can unpack sort of how to have that secret formula for work-life integration success, which we'll do now, I will be uh, calling out the places where women have become complicit in our own oppression. Thank you. Okay, so let's do this. Again, yes. So there is a secret formula and it is sort of like Atkins, right? It could be easier said than done. It's like don't eat sugar. (laughs) That works maybe, you know, it's a practice. Let's just say it's a practice. But when we watched our 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 beta tester couples over the past 10 years, and especially during the pandemic, the ones that were thriving, both indicated perceived fairness in the relationship, both indicated expectations are aligned for what they both wanted. 
the opposite of my blueberries day. I, we saw three things. And, and I will say, thing, you know, fair play is, is designed to help you get there. If you don't feel like you're at those things yet, where there's explicitly defined expectations and there's fairness and transparency yet. But the three things were boundaries, systems, and communication. That's the formula. Boundaries, systems, and communications. And so I think we can unpack all three of these, which would be fun because I don't um, define them in the typical ways. Let's hear how you define them. Boundaries first. Yes, let's start with boundaries. Um, So I think what's interesting about productivity research and my day job is I work for families that look like the HBO show Succession. And you should all feel bad for me because it's difficult work. But what I do for those families is I bring grace and humor and generosity around a table when organizations are making really difficult decisions. And so why I bring that up is because the way I look at the lens of the home is different. It is aligned. I definitely do no harm. I worked with, you know, professor of psychology on the fair play system and behavioral economists uh, and sociologists, but I look at the world through how to design it because at the end of the day, I'm a lawyer. Mm. And I believe in people have a buzzword of design. Well, the people who design this world are really laws and the attorneys. You want to, people to stop at a stop sign, guess what you do? You pass a law. You don't <laughs> want them to vote in Georgia, guess what you do? You pass a law, right? So in that design thinking, I often come across a lot of productivity specialists and they say things and God bless them. Like a boundary is two uninterrupted days a week, you know, setting that for yourself, a walk around the block, right? So this is very fine if you're pale and male, but it's not very realistic, especially if you're a caregiver, Mm -hmm. especially during the pandemic, women were interrupted on an average three minutes and 42 seconds, three minutes and 42 seconds. So this idea of two uninterrupted days a week, even Thoreau, or Walden Pond, all these people who got to, you know, philosophize on their own. It turns out their mothers and their wives are bringing them food in the woods. Okay. Uh So it doesn't happen for women. So the idea of boundaries being a walk around the block is just bullshit. What boundaries are for women is the permission to be unavailable from your roles. And now in countless, countless, countless thousands of interviews with women where I say, do you believe you deserve a permission to be unavailable from your roles as a partner, parent, and or professional? By professional, I mean anyone who works for pay or not. Most women, the super majority said no. Mm. And that was super triggering to me because men get that permission to be unavailable. Men have twice as much leisure time as women. And also new research from this professor named John Jasowitz at the Harvard Business Review and Harvard Business School says that when men are a golfer, they're a golfer. When they're a writer, they're a writer, right? But women, we take our roles as a parent and a partner with us, no matter what we do, right? That's the mental load. So a boundary is, do you believe I'm asking you out there that you deserve a permission to be unavailable? Well, society will tell you that you don't. And that's been the big core message, which is the most triggering. I think the systems and communication will be easier and more practical, but I think they don't work unless we realize that our time as women is equal as men's time. That that when our society treats men's time as diamonds and women's time as sand, we have a problem. Now we're going to take a little break so I can tell you about my sponsors. If you do have any experiences of nausea, you have to check out Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that's been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting that are associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. And the product is 100% drug-free, non-drowsy, provides all natural relief with no side effects for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients, but now through Relief Band, it's available to everyone. So how Relief Band works is that it stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of the brain that controls nausea, and then it blocks the signal your brain is sending to your stomach telling you that you are sick. How cool is that? Relief Band is the only over-the-counter wearable device that's been used in hospitals and oncology clinics to treat nausea and vomiting. So 
I get incredibly motion sick. So I cannot tell you how wonderful this product has worked for me. It helps with car sickness, seasickness. If you've had a little too much to drink, it helps with anxiety, nausea, pregnancy, nausea. And, you know, if you are anxious about doing an activity because you're going to feel nauseous, it's a great way to help get you there without that worry. So as you're getting ready to take a road trip, hop on a boat as one does casually, or if you're just anxious about heading back into the office, right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for Raising Good Humans listeners. If you go to reliefband.com and use the promo code HUMANS, you'll receive 20% off plus free shipping and a no questions asked 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com and use promo code HUMANS for 20% off plus free shipping. Artifact Uprising is so cute. It makes premium photo books, framed photos, and gifts to help you tell stories that you care about most. They just launched their new product, The Story of You, The Early Years Book, that helps you document your child's best moments from one to five. So sometimes you have a baby book and then that's that. This is like the extended baby book. And let me tell you, I did not keep track of this for both my children because second child, you kind of don't necessarily do as well with that stuff. When I pull out things from my children's babyhood and early childhood, it is just so exciting for them. And we know that young children love writing about and reading about and talking about themselves. And so it is just a fantastic, unique, interactive activity with guided prompts that make working on this book something that you can do with your child. I would not suggest doing this without your child because then it's more work for you. So unless you have the personality that just loves crafting and making these things, It's a great thing to do with your child and it's nice to find ways to connect together and laugh and enjoy. And there's a high quality book that has thick writing friendly pages. There's eco-conscious paper and also comes with free photo prints to add to the book. And the early years makes a great gift for moms as they're experiencing their babies growing up into little people with their own distinct personalities, also dads also grandparents, also other guardians. For a limited time, our listeners can get 15% off your Artifact Uprising order with the code RAISINGGOODHUMANS15. Go to artifactuprising.com slash RAISINGGOODHUMANS to purchase. I'm Arielle Laurie, host of the Blonde Files podcast, where every Wednesday I cover all things wellness. After nearly dying from drugs and alcohol six years ago, I've been on a mission to live my best, most fulfilled life, and I'm sharing everything with you. From how to achieve optimal health, well-being, and fulfillment, to the best beauty tips and even cosmetic procedures, I cover it all with raw, candid conversations with experts and inspirational guests. Make sure to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. At the same time as boundaries for women are, you know, permission to step out of that role. Is there another side of that, which is for the men to get permission to take on more roles so that they are not just doing the one thing, but that they can borrow some of our ability to keep our lack of boundaries. There are some benefits, like maybe they can take some from us. Or do you find that for both people to be satisfied and for this to work, that those boundaries need to be defined the same way? No, I think that's such a beautiful way to say it. And there's a very small story that I think illustrates that. And this will move us into the systems piece because there there was this really awesome couple that reported to me during uh, the pandemic that they were using fair play and systems to to start to make things more fair in their home. And it had to do with the magical beings card. So as we move into systems, because we talked about boundaries, we'll definitely come back to the time discrepancy and women's permission to be unavailable. But as we move into systems, which is part two of the secret formula, that's where fair play lives. It's a system. It's a not a list. 
it's a system. It started off as a list. It started off as this shit I do spreadsheet that I sent to Seth that had 98 tabs and 2000 items of invisible work on it. <laughs> and I sent it to him with, I can't wait to discuss. Didn't work. Did not work, but lists alone, they don't work, but systems do. That's what I do for a living. And once I started to recognize that, I was able to really start to develop a system based on the 50 years of organizational management research out there because our homes truly are our most important organizations. But back to your question about boundaries. So this couple said they were going to adopt the fair play system. They Part of it, it's a metaphor. There's a hundred cards. You go through it together before you decide who does what, which is a list. You have to decide why you want to build your life together. What matters to you? You're both individuals. You're not merged. You, you actually talked about that. I saw in the Drew Barrymore show, right? People can come into, into relationships with different parenting philosophies and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But you do have to align on what you both value. That's actually really important. So they decide and they align on their deck. And within their deck, they keep magical beings, which is Santa, Tooth Fairy. They actually had Lucky Leprechaun because Amy and this couple is Irish. And so Amy and Richard come to me and they say, okay, this is what happened. Richard took the magical beings card and guess what? The Tooth Fairy didn't come last night or, you know, last week or whatever. So like what you said before about boundaries and allowing men into our roles, right? It is part of the fair play method and system is not only do you own a task, so he was in charge, but you carry through your mistakes. So this couple tells me that if before fair play, what would have happened when the tooth fairy didn't come for their daughter was Amy would have said, you're the worst. She she said, I'm a verbal assassin. I would have said, you know, Richard, you're the worst. I will never let you do anything for our kids again. You've Mm -hmm. ruined our children's magic and hopes and dreams. I hate you. You can't get anything right. Right. That would, and, and then Richard said to me, and I would have said to Amy, well, it's your fault because you forgot to remind me to put the dollar under the pillow. Right. That was their dynamic. Yeah. But the, what happened after their reporting to me during the pandemic is she said, okay, I know part of my boundary setting in this system is to let Richard carry through his mistake. So he owned it. He said, I was in charge. That was the first amazing thing. He did not blame her for not reminding him. He said, my bad. I fucked up. I did not get tooth fairy there. She said, I'm not going to intervene. I'm going to trust that you will carry through your mistake with our daughter. So then Richard tells me that he emails toothfairy at gmail.com. And this is the creepy part, Aliza. He gets a response. And toothfairygmail.com says, sorry, I was backlogged. I'm going to bring the tooth tonight. Richard then tells me he prints out the email for his daughter, shows it to her and says, look, she was so backlogged. But the good news is that when she comes, if she gets a backlog, she brings double the money. (laughs) And then the tooth fairy showed up that night. So I understand that's a really small story, but the dynamic shift in that relationship, Mm -hmm. if we could get there, where there is a boundary, meaning I trust you to carry through and do your thing. Mm-hmm. And, and the man in that relationship said, I'm empowered to carry through my mistake and to say, well, there is something for me to do here. I'm not going to be criticized that I don't know what to do. That I don't know my role. And if I do make a mistake, I have the space to course correct. That is Wonderful. the power of the fair play system. I mean, that's such a wonderful, it is a small example, but it is so wonderful. And it requires letting go of that control, which is hard to do so that it goes back again to that boundary. I like the follow through of, and also giving space for the person that you've said, I'm not taking this on, this is going to be yours, but then let them, which in parallel, not to bring this back to parenting other yeah. than the fact that it's phenomenal modeling because we also need to let our kids own the stuff we let them take responsibility for. And then if, and when more likely when that doesn't go the way we had hoped or something's forgotten or whatever, it gives space to address that. And then you feel more confident and more motivated to participate. So the reason why I said this might be triggering is, or I don't even know if that's what I mean, but I don't want to suggest that the fault is on. No, you're not, but that, but you're right. There is a, the, 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 we have been told to lower our standards that women have control issues. That's really not the issue. If, if we look at it holistically, right. Yes. Where 
I have women tell me there's knives in their car seat and they're like, well, how, of course I'm not going to give up control and have my partner put my child in the car seat when they left a paring knife in there. That literally is a real. Okay. But point. that is an extreme. Yeah, I understand. I understand. <laughs> but I think everybody feels that level that of worry, fear, that worry that it's not going to get done or on their timeline because we've never had these discussions. I will say back to what you said about parenting is that my son, Zach, he left his phone home on Monday and then he's like, mom, I was driving him to school. Seth and I, that is an area where we redeal the card every day. So I, it was my day. I was taking him to school. And Zach says, well, I need you to go back for my phone. And then he says, wait a second. Okay. All you say is like, I have to carry through my mistake. So you're not going to go back and get my phone. And I said, wow, how cool that you were able to course correct yourself and know what my answer was going to be. Cause you've heard me on the zooms and in your life for the past two years. Right. Exactly. So he understood that he would probably not forget his phone again because he was going to carry <laughs> through his mistake of living on a field trip all day without his phone. So I do think it actually, I think fair play is a really great companion, not only to your work, Aliza, but to also Julie Lithcott Hames's work mm -hmm. um, of how to raise an adult, because a lot of what we say is similar, which is that fair play is based on a concept of conception planning and execution. And so what do I mean by that? Well, like I said to you that my aha moment that the home is our most important organization, that was my first question that I asked myself as I was developing the system, right? Well, what would happen if we started to treat our homes as our most important organizations? Well, uh -huh. I know it would look more like that Richard and Amy story where they would talk in advance, customize their defaults. One uh, man said to me, well, I, it wouldn't look like our house where we take, we wait to decide who's taking the dog out right? When it's about to take a piss on the rug, right? right so right. we are d dying in decision fatigue because we, d we don't have respect and rigor for our home. We think we're just going to figure it out, which actually leads to just horrific assumptions about who should do what. Um, so when you actually bring these to light, the second most important question that I asked, and this will get a lot to, to what we were talking about before about parenting, was how did mustard get into your refrigerator? I asked that question in 17 countries. And why it's such a great question, Aliza, is because it is um, universal. Yeah. Turns out there's condiments everywhere, right? There's some version of bottled sauce in all in all these in the 17 countries. So the beauty of that question, as a follow up to what if you treated your home as your most important organization, was I was able to hear within 17 countries, even the Nordic countries, which is always to me bizarre that they're always touted as the best, right? Everybody wants to live in Sweden, but in all of these countries. In a hetero cisgender marriage where a woman was married to a man, again, back to a super majority of what I would hear, even in the best of the best countries, quote unquote, was, well, I, the woman would say to me, I'm the one who notices that my second son, Johnny, likes, you know, French's yellow mustard on his protein. It's in the refrigerator because he chokes. He won't eat his protein. He chokes if it's dry. I'm like, okay, great. Write, write that down. You know, we know in the organizational management parlance, that's called conception, where you pay, you get paid big bucks to come up with these ideas and notice new things. And then I would hear, oh yeah, and then I monitor the mustard for when it's running low and I get stakeholder buy-in from my family for what they need on the list. Well, I didn't really hear stakeholder buy-in, but you know, you get it. I'm listening for that organizational parlance. That is planning. That is the planning stage. Again, very important in the organizational management side of things. And then I would hear, well, yeah. And then, you know, my husband, he goes to the store to pick up the yellow mustard and the dude brings home spicy Dijon every fucking time, Eve. And so you want me to trust him with my living will? That's not going to happen because he can't even bring home the right type of mustard. So that gets at what you were saying before. Yep. About this issue of how do you wrestle with that? And so, you know, what was cool. What was cool about this, which also relates to parenting, is that as a mediator, we're taught to hear that the presenting problem is not the real problem. The same thing you're taught as yeah. a psychologist. Um, and the beauty of that statement over and over again in 17 countries was there was an actual organizational failure, which means there's a solution. The failure was of the thing you don't want organizations to fail on, which is two things, accountability and trust. Once your organization fails on accountability and trust, it's very hard to get it back. And that's why fair play for me in talking today is the ghost is Christmas future is saying, if we can set up systems for you to keep accountability and trust 
early, which a lot of people have before kids because they look at each other as partners in crime. And that's Seth and I were, he did dishes one night. I got the takeout one night. You know, we were doing it together, but we fundamentally lost accountability and trust in our relationship. And so the beauty is that you can get that back. It's hard. I'd rather you do it before, but that you get it back through recognizing that slowly the conception planning and execution stays together. And even my sons understand that now. And I'll just give you one quick story about Ben props to my second son who was nine at the time, who, when I was scrolling Instagram, saw someone that was folding laundry with her daughter. And that's what the caption said. And Ben said to me, well, that's a terrible idea, mom, because that's not CPE. And if she's just folding laundry with her mom, then she's never going to remember to fold that laundry. She's going to be nagged to do that laundry with her mom. And she's not going to know how to do things start to finish from the secret oils in the drawer, all the way to cleaning out the lint to setting two timers for when the laundry comes out of the dryer. And then of course you have to set another timer for to come out and then you have to fold all the clothes and you have to put them back. But mom, I don't really want to do your period underwear anymore because that's gross, but I'm good at putting everything else away. Right. I mean, Ben at nine, understand that the idea to adult you have to complete a task from start to finish. And so this can start early. If you're not willing to do it with your partner, start with these concepts, you know, even with your kids. And to that end, and I want to go through your three-part system. Well, I can't call it a system because that's one of the parts. So, oh yeah, I mean the three-part formula, secret formula. Three-part formula, thank you. But just to address what you're saying, I wonder if your partner's before kids and then after kids, there's this unspoken be a mom, like be a mom. That's got to be that thing, that unspoken responsibility of the household. Even if you're working full-time equally and, or if you're not, there is this unspoken judgment of ourselves, of others. That's a mom's job. And I wonder, and I, again, this is truly curiosity. What are the growing pains in the relationship if partners decide like, let's take this on, let's take this fair play on. Is there that moment of like, it's going to suck for a little bit and people are going to get stuff wrong and things are going to fall through the cracks. And let's just acknowledge that. But, you know, we're doing this for the long haul. So we have to, it's going to be uncomfortable for a little bit and things are going to go badly. Is that part of, is that part of the expectation? Absolutely. And I think I should bring you on the road because I think the more that's what we saw, the more people who are willing to be that vulnerable and recognize that this was a practice. And I think that gets back to the communication piece, which is our third. So you sort of set me up. for Fantastic. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> I think we did boundaries and we did systems. We So basically we, you know, you remember the cliff notes are you have a permission to be unavailable ownership mindset. The conception planning and execution is the way to get to a place of accountability and trust. But I think what you're saying here is really important, right? How do you even enter? How do you start even changing these patterns that are so fundamentally ingrained? And so I'm going to loop back to boundaries because that I want to tell you how for Seth and me, it was really important for me to start using my voice Mm -hmm. in a way that actually started with the prompts and how I spoke to myself. So communication is the third prompt. And we're going to talk about how you can start to even communicate this to others. But it's really actually important. Communication starts with how you communicate to yourself, especially in this area. And so what was so interesting to me was that time discrepancy we were talking about, at least in the beginning, really seeps into communication part one about how you talk to yourself. Communication part two, we'll get to. But part one and how you talk to yourself is based on how society has talked to you since birth. And so you'll start to recognize it because I'm asking you to start recognizing it, right? So society has said things to you like, oh, if you enter a male profession, you're automatically, you're paid less, right? So so we're telling women, and that's true. If women enter a male profession, salaries automatically come down. We are telling women their time is less valuable than men's. We say things like breastfeeding is free um, when it's 1,800 hours a year of a woman's time. So literally a full-time job, right? Mm -hmm. We're hearing messages that devalues women's time everywhere. But the saddest part for me and how I talk to myself and how other women were talking to themselves was there were four toxic messages that we were telling ourselves and how we communicated to ourselves that we have to retire 
to be able to start communicating and changing pattern with someone else. You can't just say, you know, as someone said to me, well, I don't communicate about domestic life. I just dump wet clothes on his pillow when he forgets to put them in the dryer. And I said, well, actually that is communicating, but whatever we'll get, yeah. we'll get there. That is, that is communicating about domestic life. But anyway, so the things we tell ourselves happen in fours and you can reckon maybe you recognize, I'll say that to your listeners, one of these as yours. I have one that was extra triggering for me. The four top messages that we were telling ourselves and communicating to ourselves that stop us from changing our, these dynamics are one, my partner makes more money than me. And so I have to do more in the home. Mm-hmm. That's a very big one. That was one for me. I was in philanthropy. My husband was in private equity. I seem to think that my job was less important, even though now I say to myself, my job is way more important, right? I'm helping people use their money to change the world. And Seth is great. He's investing in another beverage. It's fine. But, <laughs> but back then, the idea that time is money was so, so ingrained in me that it never even occurred to me to challenge that assumption. The other one that was very triggering to me was I'm a better multitasker. I'm wired differently for the care. I'm the mom, the one you were talking about earlier. For that one, I had to go to the top neuroscientists in the country who I know through my day job because one of my clients funds him. And I said to him, are women better multitaskers? Are there things that we just know how to do better because we're moms? And this man said to me, you mean in culture or in neuroscience? I said, well, not culture because Mm -hmm. I want to know neuro. I came to you because of neuroscience. Like is my brain wired differently for multitasking. Uh-huh. And he looked at me and this was the only other day besides a blueberry where I really sobbed. And he looked at me and said, um, well, no, <laughs> there's no gender difference in how we multitask. There's no, nothing better that you do in your brain because you're a mother. He said, but imagine that we men, Eve could convince you women that you're better at wiping asses and doing dishes how great for my leisure time, my career. I don't even have to say, I don't want to do it because you have told me that I'm so bad at it. I don't have to do it. That's how I get tenure. That's why most of the people in leadership are men. He was saying it obviously sarcastically, but it really, it was like stabbed. I felt like I was stabbed in the heart, you know? And then finally, the two other that are very popular are uh, in the time it takes me to tell him or they what to do, I should just do it myself. And finally, the last toxic message is, well, we're both colorectal surgeons, but I can find the time and my partner is better at focusing on one task at a time. Um, so I think when we say to ourselves that there's actually no way to find time, we can't fuck with the space-time continuum, we're not Albert Einstein, mm-hmm. and that we deserve as much time choice over how we use our day as our male counterparts, then all of a sudden the internal self-speak completely changed. That's communication 101 for ourselves. When I went to Seth, instead of saying, you have to start taking, you know, Zach to school earlier and handle the school forms. No, it doesn't start that way. It started with me looking at Seth and saying, wow, I noticed you have three hours after our kids go to bed or four hours to check sports center, your fantasy league, work out and finish your PowerPoint deck. But I'm doing things in service of our home till the minute my head hits the pillow. And I'm not going to live like that anymore. I deserve as much time choice over how I use my day. And if that means you have to spend more time in your choice, in your time choice with, with unpaid work for our kids. So I can get more time choice to write and to exercise and to breathe. Then that's really the dynamic shift in our relationship. But Aliza, that is not easy. That's why I said, this is a Mm one-on-one that self-talk is something that we have to uncondition ourselves from that we've heard since we've been born. For sure. And we have to believe it, which I'm sure you know, every hour you could shift. I would say there are many times and I have a co-parent, but we are not partners in other ways, whatever that means. We're yeah, I, that, I, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of, there's a, an awareness of judgment. If you weren't the one who filled out the forms, there is an awareness of judgment, whether it's, you know, and it does come from us too, like somehow, especially if you're a traditionally working parent, like somehow you're a rock star if you also made it to pick up and you also, you know, somebody just interviewed me for a podcast and they asked me, she does not have kids. It was, it, it was not that kind of podcast, but she wanted to know, like, how do you do it all? And I was like, well, for one thing, I don't. And that question in and of itself is so disturbing because of course 
I then am thinking, I'm saying right now, I don't. And here are the many indicators that I'm not. One of them is like a big one, which is that I'm divorced. But also it was a moment where I was thinking, oh, now I'm going to go tell myself, I really don't do, I really like half-ass it with everything. Like you can get into that language with yourself. And then another, in another minute, you can feel so empowered and like, yeah, I'm giving space for someone to take on part of this so that I'm not. And that's great. Like I deserve this time and this is my boundary and all of those things. So, but you can go from that to, oh God, I, yeah, like I'm not taking on mom. Right. And it feels terrible. It does. Guilt and shame is a tool of of the patriarchy. I mean, I don't know what else to say about it. It it And I think it's also, I imagine sometimes people are thinking also, I love doing these things the way I can't imagine. This is a thought I can never imagine, which is the joy of cooking because I haven't, I'm not good at it. (laughs) So it's a necessity. And I do it sometimes, not sometimes I have to do it more than sometimes, but it's not a strength. I'll say that, but I see the joy. Keep the cooking, but nobody loves to do fucking dishes. Right. 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 No one likes to do laundry. No one likes to wipe asses and throw out like shitty, like, but there are people that will tell themselves they do. And I think that's, and there might even be people that do because they feel like this is my role this is my work and it's, and I enjoy it and I love it. And if I say otherwise to myself or anyone else, what is that saying about me? And so I just really love the idea of how this is a practice. It can take a very long time and a process, but reframing how we speak to ourselves. Cause we don't even realize like, even in saying, I love doing this, it's my pleasure is not the same thing as saying, I love you. And I think we get that confused. We all love our children deeply and all express that in different ways. And for those who express it in a way where it's caregiving, which of course we are all doing as well. I mean, I remember just one of my best friends noticing that when the kids were all playing, I sit very comfortably chatting and not worrying. Now I don't have toddlers, so I can do that in an easier way. But I always was a little bit easier about that. And there was judgment, like I'm not engaging right now in this moment, but I knew that other people were all around and that we're all sort of collectively there, but we do go through these different thoughts and that's okay. You can have those thoughts and work on reframing to get yourself, because you wire your thinking in a different way. Well, I hope you keep it in. I hope Ah. you keep it in. No, because it's really important because it's a both and. That's the thing. Everything in our society has become an either or, but it could be a both and. It could be both. I love my kids and I want more time back. My kids recently, I said to them, you know, I'm not sure why I've been wearing your initial for all these years. Like I'm, I'm putting my own fucking initial back on my neck, you know? And so they're all like so proud of me. Mom's putting her initial back on her neck because all these years I was, you know, Zach's mom or Ben's mom or Anna's mom. And I will say that is what my second book is about. I'm writing about women's identity. But before we get there, I want to just acknowledge what you said about the person who asked you, how do you do it all? Just one funny thing that my friend who's a lawyer says, someone asked her that too um, on a panel of, she's a high profile partner at a law firm. And they say, well, how can you be a good mom and, uh, you know, work this hard, you know, billing on an hourly, you know, 5 million hours a year. And she said, well, I'm not trying to be a good mom. She's like, I'm just trying to be a great dad. Oh, wow. And I just think that is still (laughs) one of my favorite quotes of all time, because I think that just shows you that a lot of these expectations, the guilt and shame are tools to keep us um, thinking that we're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. And my entire second book is about this quest to understand why is it that sustained attention for things we love for women, especially Mm -hmm. things that maybe aren't paid are considered subversive still. Mm. Literally anywhere I went when I was writing Fair Play, I did not have a book deal then. I was just researching unpaid labor 10 years ago because I was interested in it. And Seth would take the kids on Sunday. This was after our time choice conversation. And inevitably, as I was writing, people would say, do you have kids or I get into conversations? It was always who's watching your kids. Oh my gosh, you've leaving them for a whole Sunday. It was so much societal pressure to change my behaviors into what conformed for others. And sadly, this idea of not being unavailable, right? This permission to be unavailable. It really does start with this idea that we are our milestones. Women are really defined as our roles. We are mothers 
We may be professionals. We may work or inside or outside the house. But what I'm here to argue is the most important things that we're going to do are the things we we do for ourselves. And what I will say is that regardless, Aliza, if you made a dollar from this podcast or a billion dollars from the podcast, <laughs> this hour, what you do for me, what you do for other women and parents is priceless. It's more important than any work that maybe your co-parent does, right? And so I just hope that other women recognize that, you know, that it's, it is literally priceless, but we've been taught that, you know, sustain things, attention for things that we love, unless it's somehow in the conforms of what we're, what we know, and these milestones are the only things that matter. So anyway, I will just say that keep on unicorning, as I like to call it, I call it unicorn space, but the active pursuit of what makes you, you, I got to go down a rabbit hole and listen to all your episodes are just, it's fundamentally priceless. Thank you so much. It is such a great joy for me. So I feel really lucky that I can do this. And also it feels like, and I remember writing my dissertation on attachment and hearing my baby crying and being like, this is so messed up. And sometimes I'm doing a podcast on something and then my kids do whatever they're going to do. And they're like, you want to put that on the podcast? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's such a, you know, just a messed up moment that we all have. But I, I love the support that I get. Like I get so much joy. And this was going to be one of my questions is like, how do we support each other? I know that I have mom groups and lots surrounding parenting and all of that. But the majority of the people that are participating happen to be women, maybe 90s. 7% or something like I, you know, you can go on Instagram and look at your analytics and it'll say what your demographics are. And it's like 97% women. So even though, of course, this matters for everybody, this is obviously like a support system that is more necessary in this particular dynamic. And it's so wonderful to be able to name it and talk about it and think about ways to navigate this. And you said something about the necklaces that, you know, the initials. And it's so interesting because there's another tension that's like, of course, being a mother, I feel weepy just thinking about like what a beautiful privilege it is. And I love it so much in addition to all the exhaustion and confusion and mistakes and emotions, but I deeply love it. And also it is no gift to our children to have them think that they are the center of our lives because then they spend much of their adulthood feeling so shitty that you have no purpose in life. And the relationship and adolescence too, like the worry, the, you know, the idea that your every move you make as a child, teenager, adult is somehow going to make or break your parent is no gift. It it just is no gift. So yes, we can love them and know that they are of, I mean, I don't, I think it's hard to find a parent who wouldn't think about their child and like, just if we all close our eyes and picture one of our, the faces of our kids, like it brings light to us and joy, but that's different than, you know, like my necklace doesn't have my initials at all because you're everything and and that's that. And I think that there's an interesting, it's just interesting. No, it isn't. It's, you know, I think that's, you know, martyrdom is real. I love this book by, I think, Emily Nagasaki is how she says her name is called Burnout. And she calls it the human giver syndrome, right? We just are supposed to be giving and giving like the giving tree. And I love that there was a terrible book. There was a man who wrote, rewrote it. It's called the tree that said healthy boundaries. And I was Ah. like, that is the best, but exactly. I think the, um, Tova Klein, who I love, you know, out of Barnard. Love Tova. Yeah, she had a great quote for Fair Play, which was this idea around uh, these things that we're talking about now, which is the, the theme of book two is it's called Find Your Unicorn Space. It's about how important it is to bring that initial back, right? To, to start doing things that make you uniquely you and share those with the world, aka this podcast. But she said something so important to me when I was starting to say, well, a lot of women will say to me, they don't know what makes them uniquely them anymore. And they don't have, they're telling me they don't have things to share with the world. And so that would break my heart and say, everybody has it and we're going to help you refine it if, it if it's been lost. But her really important advice was you cannot make your unicorn space the thing that makes you the perfection of your children. Yeah. 
And that is a boundary breach she sees a lot, right? That, you know, you wanted to be a classic pianist and that didn't happen for you, right? So then your kids in eight hours a, a week of lessons. Mm-hmm. I see many um, men who, who say things to me, like I didn't get to be a professional athlete. That's my dream. Their mm-hmm. kids are signed up for 10 hours of batting cages, right? That is a boundary breach that is, is a recipe for mental health disaster later. So making, making sure that you have your own dreams is really important because your kids will see that and then they will recognize it's hard to have fulfill those dreams. It, it's a lot of rigor mm-hmm. to produce a podcast. It is not all fun. Mm-hmm. It's not all lights and rainbows and cupcakes. There's rigor in achieving your dreams. And when your kids see you struggle with that, then what a gift, because then they know it's not something that can be bought for them or that you can forge that path. Back to the first thing we started with, that is the ultimate essence of, I think, of resilience and grit. It really is. And, you know, Carl Jung says the greatest burden that kids, I'm going to mess it up, but basically the greatest burden on kids is the unlived life of the parent. Parent, 100%. So it's, you know, it's not, all of this is like to pitch the idea of how important this is. Exactly. And also we know if you're only in this for your kids, let's say that's, you're just like, okay, but how does this impact my kids? Your well-being and mental health is the most important thing before you can do anything else. And we know this in theory, but I have a friend who was like really pissed about the idea of like putting your oxygen mask on first. Mm -hmm. Cause she was like, they obviously, whoever says that doesn't really have kids. And I was like, I say that all the time. Yeah, no, it's actually really important. (laughs) You can't, you You are literally suffocated to death. Yes. If you um, put your child's mask. And then of course, again, it's like you said, this is a practice. This is a one oh one. These are messages that, you may be hearing for the first time and that's okay. Mm-hmm. It is something that we all back to you said, it's about support. It's about recognizing that even just 13 years ago, when I had Zach, there was no Instagram. There were no podcasts like you. There was nothing. I had nothing to warn me about <laughs> what was about to happen. And so the idea that there's, you see invisible work, that's been the beauty of the pandemic that, you know, it may not be solved yet, but the invisible is becoming visible. Is that um, what happened? I, that's I what mean, happened. that's such Men a Men did not point. do more. Men did not do more. But they saw more. They saw more. So and, and there's mad it. respect, but there's not now, necessarily yes. change. But you know what? But that's how change happens. So Great. my mother, who's a professor of social change at the Hunter School of Social Work, she says there's actually three steps to change. You have to go from pre-consciousness to consciousness, and then you can go to the fight for solutions. So we got one crucial step forward, which is really an understanding that invisible work, childcare and housework is important. It's our humanity. And I think that is a step to starting to recognize that there is going to, I'm hoping, and I believe that there's going to be a sea change in what women will tolerate and what men and the gifts men will have in terms of demanding that they get to be not just an ideal worker defined by their breadwinning status, but that they can be defined by other things instead, including, you know, being a a father and an active caregiver. I could talk about this for hours. It's so interesting. I have one last question, which is so bizarre that this is my question. <laughs> but what have you found in terms of relationship satisfaction from not just the women, but the men after doing fair play? Well, it's such a great question. I think it's a, the most important question because what's in it for men? You know, if you think, oh shit, I just have to take on more wiping asses and doing dishes. Yeah, I, that's basically right? what I want to know. Yeah, it, it sounds terrible, right? But that's also just like, that would be using fair play as a giant list, right? Here, take these 50 cards and, you know, leave me the fuck alone. It's not that. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I'll end on a very quick story because it's, and bizarrely it, ha- it has to do with tooth fairy again. I don't know why I had two tooth fairy stories <laughs> for you. I have a client who is, again, HBO show succession in that echelon, but he's also been a very active caregiver in his children's lives. And so I love, he was an early beta tester because he held more cards even than his wife, who was a stay-at-home wife. And he was also the quote unquote breadwinner. So I always thought, we know, what did he get out of it? Why did he do this? When I was toxic time messaging his work 10 years ago, why would he do that? He earns the money, right? All those messages that I didn't unlearn yet. And he looked at me and he said, you know what, Eve? In life, you just, you don't get anything for free. 
And for him, the investment that he made in his children, he is literally so close to his two daughters. So this same man called me and said that he was at a funeral and he was thinking of me. And I said, well, that's fun. That funeral is making you think (laughs) of me. But it was before the pandemic. He was at a funeral of another sort of Titan, you know, wealthy man in the Pacific Northwest. And it was in a church and it was packed. And his three daughters were all dressed in white. And each one of them went up to the podium and recited like a Shel Silverstein rhyming type poem or a Dr. Mm-hmm. Seuss type poem. And then people were confused because they didn't give any context and they would laugh and the poem was cute. And the second daughter went up and read this awesome, beautiful, really awesome poem that was funny and irreverent and people were laughing. And then the third daughter went up and read a poem and they all leaned into the microphone and they said, these were the poems our father wrote for us as the tooth fairy growing up. And we have them and we're using them, you know, for our children. And what my client said to me was nobody talked about how much money he made. Nobody was talking about the businesses he sold. Everybody reflected on this, the the fact that he was a tooth fairy, that he was a secret poet, that he had this amazing relationship with his three adult daughters. That is what the legacy was that this man left at the end of his life. Mm -hmm. And so, especially when I think of men and legacy and what, what are we on this earth for? It is to be humans. It's to connect with other humans, especially the ones in our family. And I believe men have been sold a bill of goods for a long time by saying that they don't deserve that opportunity to be in their full power, as we said earlier, and in the home, because this is what it leads to. It's so funny because not that, I mean, ideally you stay married and have a beautiful partnership and also divorced dads have just had to take on so many roles and have the ones who do it well, the ones who have stuck with it and really been in are incredible. Like I I think my kids have an incredible relationship with their father because the act of caregiving grows your heart and your relationship and your connection. So I, as I ask, like, what do the dads get out of this? I think they truly, the ones, I mean, if you're here, if there's a dad listening, yes, dad, come on, like you're awesome. Love you. Yeah. Thank you for being here. But it is true scientifically, like the act of caregiving does grow that connection and your brain actually grows at the transition to parenthood and it has nothing to do with giving birth. It's the act of caregiving. But it's so interesting because I also think I'm just hearing this. I imagine those acts also make your relationship sexier and better and you feel absolutely so it's it must feel so good to not get like berated or told that you like can't that you're incompetent. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting like, the opposite now. I'm getting the like you're so incompetent, you know. The I think the fun <laughs> part of it's so fun to be in the other role now to say, oh wow, well, like my partner's minimum standard of care. That's a term I use in the book about how you come together and your what you decide, how you make fill your standards has become higher. That's the beauty about accountability and trust. When you have accountability, often it fosters trust because then that person wants to do things better, mm-hmm. right? It, it becomes like this snowball effect of yeah. beauty. And, and I will say that my husband since this transformation of doing more invisible work in the home has only become more successful. That is so you know, cool. it, it is he and he says that he thinks he has less time. So he's more efficient in his decision making because he does more no doubt. Yeah. caregiving. He has more interesting conversations with other men and people because he has something to share about his kids and his life. And especially because he gets to talk about fair play, which I think is hilarious that he talks about a book that portrays him in a really terrible light. (laughs) But I think he's such a proponent now of the CPE, of the ownership mindset, of the check-ins, of the communicating, of the rigor of home life, because it works. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Like I said, I have the largest study of unpaid labor in the world at this point. It works. This works. It's a practice. It's not perfect. It doesn't mean I don't look at Seth um, on Sunday nights and say, I hate your face. (laughs) Let's just talk tomorrow when emotion is low and cognition is high because TGIM, as Jancy Dunn says, thank God it's Monday. It is hard to raise kids. And then the last thing I will say, I do want to give divorced fathers a lot of props because the most empowered women that I saw in their careers were women who were not married anymore, who had a co-parent. 
Yeah. And I kept really saying to myself, do I need to divorce Seth <laughs> no. to get there? But I'm saying, but that was an option I was really considering in 2011 mm-hmm. because I saw that my most empowered friends who were having the best lives were divorced. And so I like to say like fair play is like divorce for married people. <laughs> well, that is the dream because the little dirty secret of divorce, you know, I'm lucky enough to have like the good kind, I guess, if there is right, a good kind. A good kind, absolutely. The co-parent, absolutely. The co-parent yeah. kind is that you have a little more time for yourself and you have no yeah. guilt about, no you know, guilt. distribution of responsibility. Yeah. And if you could take that and have a marriage, I mean, what a wonderful right. idea. <laughs> That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get at. Divorce from married people is really, and the truth is that, you know, it is a lot of women said to me back to the last piece of our formula, that it was easier to ask for a divorce than it was to ask for fairness in their marriage. And so what I'm here to say is if we can get you at Resentometer three, not Resentometer 10, where the accountability and trust is not fully falling apart in your relationship, then there's a chance. There is a chance to right the ship. And so We're here to support you in whatever journey that you choose. 